You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 179. And we are actually live from the Meadowlands at the Society of Ecological Restoration Mid-Atlantic Conference. <laughs> that, that scared me there for a second. There was a yeah. little bit of a pause. I was like, it's, oh, we're it's not. because we don't have a laugh sign. <laughs> we're an applause sign to remind yeah. everyone. Uh, so... It's a great crowd today. A lot of our uh, past guests in the crowd, I see. And I'm just curious when you think when do you think they're going to turn on us today? We're <laughs> we're the, we're the last talk before lunch. It's it's lunch now. Yeah, they we, actually pushed lunch back to fit us in. Yeah, and we have a one hour time limit. When was the last time we recorded under an hour? Never. The one time where we had like a hard out. It would be in 45 minutes. So at some, I'm I'm guessing probably around one fifteen, they get hangry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll make it quick. Yeah. I should so stop we should, this out. yeah, you should stop drawing this out, and we should get into our guest today, who is Rebecca Swadek, who is the director of wetlands management for New York City uh, Department of Parks and Recreation. So Rebecca, you can kind of give us a better introduction to who you are and what you do than I ever could, uh, since I've only met you today. So why don't you do that? Sure. Um, so yeah, as I'm Rebecca. I go by Becca generally. I'm usually only Rebecca when I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I've been with Parks for about 10 years now, which is really, really crazy. And um, I'm director of wetlands for Parks, which basically really means that if anything, if, if whatever it is touches or could trigger the Clean Water Act, I'm probably involved. Um, so that's the, I guess, shortest way of uh, describing my job. But basically, I'm charged with managing and protecting and restoring the, the wetlands and waterways in New York yeah. City. Clean All Water Act. Do you want to get into that? That's yeah, a short wait. topic. Yeah. To talk about, right? <laughs> that should take us to about four. We should be all right. At least. <laughs> so although we're here at SEER today and we're speaking to the choir, um, for our listeners at home that may be unaware, what? how would you say – what makes the New York City waterways unique? Yeah, um, so, so many different things. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, New York City is just a city of water. Um, it, I think most people might be surprised to know that we actually have about 100 miles of freshwater streams in New York City. They're largely small headwaters, um, so not, you know, big, big flowing streams like the Bronx River, which is the largest freshwater stream in the city, um, but that we actually have only eight, about 15% of our freshwater streams left, and also similarly about 15% of our salt marshes left, and one small percent of our freshwater wetlands. So that's really kind of where we're at. Um, but thinking about the estuary and just like what we have done to our, our streams, wetlands, our waterways, I think it's more just crazy and unique to me that despite so much, how much we've done to them, um, that there's still thriving ecosystems and that they really, we ask them to do a lot, um, but they still provide really important services to literally millions of people. And that I think is pretty special. What, of course, because we have to go off script immediately Mm -hmm. because that's, that's how we do it. No problem. What, and I'm, I'm sure that there's probably been plenty of surveys about this. What do, do the waterways mean to the average New Yorker that lives in the city? That's a great question. I think it's probably different for for every single person. Um, for me, um, they're, they're places of respite, like staring. I could stare at water for literally hours and do absolutely nothing else. Um, and I know, you know, that's one of the benefits of water. They provide more mental health benefits to people than forests or other traditional green space. So... For, uh, you you kind of went what's left. What's the the state of the wetlands, like condition-wise? How do you feel? I know a lot of work has been done over the decades to improve the conditions of, of, of many of these waterways. Are you satisfi- satisfied? Is there a lot of work to be done? Do you, do you feel that you're behind the eight ball? Is, is change happening for the worse faster than you can repair them? 
Yeah, I I definitely feel terrified most every day. I think, <laughs> um, I think the state of our wetlands is pretty tenuous. Um, I feel optimistic about what we what we know, what we don't know, the work that we've been able to get done. I know we're learning a ton. Um, I mean, you heard from Chris Haight this morning. Um, we've been doing some really great pilot projects, and um, I feel I feel good about what we what we're learning and what we know and what we don't know. Um, one thing that we do know is we have uh, data from surface elevation tables or SETs that are situated throughout the city that shows our salt marshes are fighting. And that is a good thing and a bad thing. I'm glad that they're fighting under sea level rise, but I'm terrified to the degree to which they have to fight. Um, but I do feel really good about what we know and that we're you know, trying to refine and prioritize where we do work and how we spend you know, money as effectively as possible. Um, Ten years ago, for example, we did uh, an ecological assessment throughout the city and all in about a thousand acres of salt marshes. And we kind of learned where we need to do what, where we need to direct resources, um, what types of strategies are needed to protect what we have. Um, Creation is is certainly a thing that we do a lot of, or well in creation, it's a source of mitigation. But we we definitely learned that our wetlands are at risk and they're drowning. Um, we're losing a lot along the edge and the Long Island Sound in particular. Um, about 30% of the shoreline in Long Island Sound has eroded just since the Clean Water Act was initiated in the 1970s. Um, Jamaica Bay wetlands are at the lowest um, the lowest in the tidal range, and they're at the highest risk of drowning. And every every little bit of monitoring data we continue to do um, shows that. And, you know, Staten Island is a a whole other beast, but also similarly at risk. Um, As far as what we have to do moving forward, we we know we need to keep trying to make them um, keep pace with sea level rise and really keep trying to throw all of the tools of the toolbox that we have at them. Um, But I, you know, looking... I'm more of a, I'm certainly like a long-term planner in my brain. Um, That's kind of my natural... um, natural inclination, but I am uh, unfortunately very, very aware that I won't be able to retire until 2050, and that's a planning horizon. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing? How many more times are we going to have to do this by 2050? And, you know, where, you know, kind of what what does that look like? When you think about, you know, oh, I want to make sure our wetlands are existing until 2050 in your head, and you're designing that for a restoration project, and I'm like, oh God, that's 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 when I can start collecting a pension at <laughs> the very basic <laughs> level. So um, it kind of puts some of that, I think, into a greater perspective for me from a long term perspective. Could could you estimate? You said talked about recreating wetlands. Mm-hmm. Could you estimate how many New York City wetlands currently are recreated versus original? Uh, about one hundred and sixty percent. 160 acres. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm joking. I wish. But, yeah. 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 No, I, I wasn't sure if, if how much would be like actually original. But, uh, friend, going back to something you said about what New York City wetlands mean to like the average New York City resident, yeah. it reminded me of a trip I took about this time last year. Um, I had a meeting in uh, New York City for the Atlantic Seed Association. Okay. And uh, I met up with my, some of my friends who lived in Queens, and I was like, oh, we sent a lot of plants to this Hunter's Point South project. We're going to meet up there. So I told them to go there, and I'm, like, freaking out about all the plants. And they're like, oh, we got engaged, like, right over here. And that was just – it was picturesque. It's where they wanted – they hired a photographer. So that was what it meant to them. They didn't really care about the plants at all. <laughs> I kind of geeked them out with that. But but without uh, the plants, it yeah. might not have made that moment that Exactly, special. yeah. So, and they probably, I would, I would imagine that the average person doesn't know what went into making that picturesque. Exactly. Because it's just yeah. picturesque in its beauty. It's, it's not like it was made for, for photo opportunities, but it just happens. They, I'm assuming that the average person doesn't know what went into, especially New York City, making mm-hmm. that happen. Yeah. Would you, would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful site. Great spot to choose. Oh, yeah. uh, that's one of my favorite creative wetland or created wetlands. Um, it's a very creative design, um, very, uh, very innovative, and I think um, interesting ex- ways to experience the wetland. Like you can be up high, but you can kind of be walking through it and still along the shoreline. It's a really, really great site. So, speaking of retiring, what what would you like to see? Because I'm sure you you would have had to have thought about it. When you retire, what would you like the state of the wetlands to be? What, what are your goals? Where would you like to see 
or what would you like to see have accomplished by the time you retire? Oh God. Um, that's, I feel like that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I, I feel like at the very base level, I would like for, we have, uh, Three marshes right now, um, Forest Sparrow, Idlewild, and Sawmill that provide habitat, uh, breeding, nesting habitat for saltmarsh sparrows. And okay. I would love for those to still be able to do that. Salt mills coming down the road? Is, that, is there a restoration coming for that? It's Sawmill? Yeah. Yes. They're, uh, the next phase of the mitigation bank or marshes um, is starting this spring. Awesome. That's fantastic news. I love hearing. I would imagine. Well, I know that doing these wetland restorations can be challenging for normal reasons like permitting and all that kind of stuff. I would assume it's ramped up in New York City. Yeah. What kind of challenges do you face that maybe are behind the scenes and other people don't know about? Uh, it's a good question. So there, I feel like there's things that have ramped up. Um, one thing post post Sandy is a lot of, uh, you know, brought about the need to re- make our shorelines and our city more resilient and um, with every project um, along a shoreline on a city that is surrounded by water means every bridge that has to be raised, every footing that has to be shored, every esplanade that needs to be um, uh, rehabilitated because it potentially is crumbling a little bit into the waterways or you have sinkholes or whatever, um, every road that needs to be raised, there is well in mitigation associated with that. And it's often, you know, people often think mitigation, oh, developers, bad. Um, often mitigation is just maintaining our infrastructure in good working order for a state of good prepare. That's like at, at the basic level for for us, at least. That's a lot of what I, I deal with. So um, having having being able to review those projects working you know alongside the regulators in many instances to say like can you please not impact this or how can we reduce this here um, is always a negotiation and then you know once you've minimized impacts enough um, to be able to say okay here's where we can you know do off-site or on-site mitigation so that's a good chunk of um, my job let alone then actually trying to care and restore for the wetlands mm-hmm. that we have so those are usually two separate categories. Yeah. All right. I have a two-part question. Do you have a favorite success story, wetland or marsh success story? And if you were to have everyone visit just one wetlands in New York City, which one would you send them to? Good question. Um, favorite success story. So I'm going to choose two because I'm not good at choosing favorites. Um, but one, one of my favorites is honestly the Hook Creek project that we just did. Like, Chris did a phenomenal job managing that project. It looks so great. Um, I think, you know, to be honest, there is a certain part of me that's like, oh, great. We created a beach for a couple of weeks. Like that was kind of the goal. We got it at the highest elevation. The sand stayed like that is that is what we intended to happen. And now, you know, plants are filling in and it's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Um, And I think we confirmed a lot of suspicions during the course of that project. So it was really great. Um, Another favorite project is probably Sunset Cove. I feel like that's the most stereotypical one to say, but that park is just beautiful. Um, You can't you can't beat it. Um, For those of for those of you who've not been to Sunset Cove, I highly recommend it. Um, you can get there on the A-line by getting off at of the Broad Channel stop um, in Queens and just walking about 20 minutes south. Um, it was an abandoned, or not an abandoned, it was a marina that um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation had to close for illicit filling um, activities over the course of decades. It was highly, highly, highly contaminated. And um, we... Fundraised post-Sandy, took in some mitigation dollars and also some city funding to raise or restore about six acres of wetland there, mostly low and high marsh and then some coastal forest. So there's a really nice raised path along the edge of it. You can kind of circumnavigate the site. And um, then with a lot of, well, this whole project would not have happened, I should say, also without immense, immense community support. That cannot be understated and also not something that I have ever witnessed with such fervor in another location like that this project would not have been done without the community so that's another thing that makes it really really special um but uh there's also now a boardwalk that actually goes out and is raised up into the wetlands so you can kind of be in it and stand on it and really kind of experience it in a different way 
Um, but it is also aptly named Sunset Cove because it faces west and it has this just like really beautiful view um, and sunset view of Jamaica Bay and the skyline. And it's just a, a, a wonderfully special place. Um, I know they were out finishing monitoring on it a couple days ago um, and, you know, ran into people who were like, oh, my God, we love this park. It's so great. And, um, you know, it's just really I think it's special to have been able to create a resource and a place that's so loved by the community. So that's one. I think that's probably my favorite project. <laughs> but if you couldn't tell. Um, and then the marsh to go to, that was another one. Yes. Um, any of the marshes in Pelham Bay Park, I just absolutely love. Um, you can't, I don't think you can get much better. Um, I, I kind of joke that I often don't go to New York City parks on my weekends because I come home with a to-do list. Like it ends up feeling like work and I'm like, ugh, I wanted to check out. Um, but Pelham is one of the places where like, I don't have that feeling. It's just like, it's such a special place. Um, it's the largest park in New York City, but it's also um, one of the places where the, you know, the rocky New England shoreline meets New York City. Um, and I was trained as a plant ecologist. I love plants, but I really, really love rocks. So I also just love being able to like sit on a rock in the water. Um, that's the greatest thing in the world to me. Nice. Very nice. I, I want to throw a question to the audience. We have an all-star audience today. And just by show of hands, how many people in the audience have either been a part of in some way or worked on the New York City uh, wetlands creation or restoration? It's just about the whole audience. Except for <laughs> so, the folks from Maryland and West Virginia yeah. and <laughs> Delaware. That's about it. <laughs> Let's talk partners. I, I know in every project, and I've heard this as a running theme throughout the day today, that it's important to have partners to get things done. How important are the partners that you work with? Absolutely critical. Yeah, uh, at the state level, at the you know government level, at the city level, at the community level, they, nothing would really get done without all of them. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. I was just sitting here as we were talking, trying to think of of people that we deal with that like New York Restoration Project or uh, Don Reapy at um, American Literal Society. And I was thinking all this great work that that they're helping to create, which is has to be important. Is there any shout outs you want to give to any partners? I know that's a loaded question. I know you can't name them all. Oh, yeah, I definitely <laughs> can't name them all. Um, I, I guess – I'll, I'll give the ones that I know that are um, that I'm working with or have worked with in the last week. So they're, I guess, at the top of my mind. Um, and I will also call out to Prospect Park Alliance because I see them in the audience. <laughs> so that's, that's just one. Um, but uh, Billion Oyster Project is really great. Um, oyster restoration is uh, a, a challenging thing to do in the city. So that's in one thing that it's um, you know, important to cleaning our waters and helping protect our wetlands. So that's, that's one partner. And, and Billion Oyster Pete is supposed to be a guest. And oh. we were communicating through Instagram, and then his Instagram got hacked, and I oh, haven't yeah, heard anything yeah. since. So. His Instagram is unhacked. Yeah. Oh, it's again. unhacked? I can reach out to him. Yeah, He's yeah. just so. ignoring you yeah. now. <laughs> um, and then um, the Bronx River Alliance is another really critical partner. Um, we're, I know this because I'm dealing with a, 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 another water leak in a concrete plant park that they flagged yesterday. So um, there's partners like that that are really important to see stuff on the ground and to say, hey, this is happening. I don't think this is supposed to be happening. And I'm like, you're correct. This is not supposed to be happening. Um, what's another one? Um, you know, the, the Natural Areas Conservancy is our nonprofit partner. Um, they're, you know, housed in our offices, and we work very closely with them on, on restoration work on the ground and also assessment. Um, we, could, you know, really could not get anything done um, without our, our state and federal partners at NOAA, NEMS, DEC, um, EPA, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I definitely am leaving out a ton, but um, can't can't negate those. No and then, yes, ALS, um, Littoral Society, Jamaica Bay Rockaway Parks Conservancy, et cetera, are also critical. So I do have a question. This is partly my ignorance. Jamaica Bay, part of that is National Park Service? Jamaica Bay, everything, the Marsh Islands in Jamaica Bay are National Park Service. Okay. So basically the Belt Parkway is kind of the dividing line. Okay. So north of the Belt Parkway is likely city. South okay. of the Belt Parkway is often federal. So is that, is there a collaboration there or that's their responsibility? 
Yeah, it. I mean, they own it and are, and are responsible for managing okay. it, but um, there is kind of a collaboration in there and that the Jamaica Bay Rockaway Parks Conservancy it was kind of formed to serve as that awesome. um, go-between and between and um, manage property on both sides. Very cool. Very cool. I want to back up a little bit, and obviously wetlands are important everywhere, but what makes the New York City wetlands even more important? Are they more important than, than other places? Define more important. Well, I'm just thinking. <laughs> In my we, head, yes. Yeah. We talk about wetlands and how as we've, we've built up things and created more impervious surface, how the role of wetlands is of increased importance. I can't think of many places that have more impervious surface than New York City. For sure. Yeah, I think um, they're you know critical everywhere for providing basic services like clean water, clean air, um, carbon sequestration, uh, stormwater and flood absorption, um, millions of other things that I'm not thinking of right now, Uh, just habitat provisioning at the basic level. But I think urban wetlands, particularly ones in New York City, like even if you don't live on in a rural area or, you know, don't live on Staten Island or don't live in Jamaica Bay, it's kind of hard to not know that they exist in the city and that they're important. Um, they provide functions and that are outsized, just dramatically outsized, just because of this sheer volume and number of people in the city that get to experience them from an educational standpoint. Yeah, and they all got put to the test last week, too, with oh, all yes. the yes, yes. intensity. Did that cause any damage, or did you get to go through and kind of inventory and say, oh, this worked, this didn't work? Yeah, we haven't yet, because um, it's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, a good point. Um, yeah, I we'll, we'll see, I think, what our uh, some of our new restoration sites did um, did over the weekend, or, well, mostly on, sun- on Friday. Um, but, you know, definitely no, I saw photos of, like, the Bronx River, for example. Mm-hmm. It, it took, a, took a pretty severe beating, but... Um, you know, they do what they're meant to do. They're meant to be floodplains. They absorb water, um, and they convey water and hopefully, you know, detain water when, when that makes sense. And um, I, I'm not the only one in the audience I, I heard today whose basement was flooded on Friday, so um, <laughs> I, I feel with everybody. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy, and hopefully they, hopefully they fared all right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the amount of work that's been done over the decades, had that not occurred, how much worse a situation like yeah. this could have been? How much rain did you actually get? Do you, do you know? I got about six inches. Wow. Pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Very, very, in yeah. about three hours. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, speaking of projects, I know we, we mentioned Sawmill is coming out. Are there any projects that you're excited about that are in the works that are going to be being done uh, in the near future? Yeah, let me pull those up because I created a list of those. Oh, awesome. I like that it's a list. It's not just one. Um, So you'll hear about a a habitat connectivity project this afternoon. We're looking at the the two dams on the Bronx River in the Bronx um, and both the zoo and the botanical gardens, uh, looking at restoring fish passage primarily for alewife. And um, we also have a really great... Uh, 35-acre habitat restoration upcoming at Spring Creek with the Army Corps. Um, That'll be a largely wetland and upland restoration project. They're going to be removing a bunch of historical fill um, that was placed, I believe, in a kind of a uh, impact, like Corps impacted this back in the 50s sort of thing. And um, as part of their restoration program, they're going to be actually able to remove that fill, um, reuse it on site, and then we're doing thin layer placement on some of the, the wetland that's drowning. So that was a, a component that we were able to include. And then a bunch of uh, coastal coastal forest restoration on the edges. And uh, in a future phase, it'll provide um, access to, in, to that neighborhood. We also have uh, similarly a thin layer placement and kind of reconstruct eroded marsh <laughs> project happening at Four Sparrow Marsh that's going to start this spring. Um, that site is kind of a multifaceted project and it's, um, going along with some other, uh, reforestation on the Belt Parkway, 
But in 2017, we were able to remove 1,100 tons of marine debris from Forest Barrow Marsh. And um, mostly a couple boats over the course of the years, but largely uh, a lot of pilings, um, wood pilings and piers. And um, so that debris sitting on the marsh for decades really just compressed the peat. And so now we're going to be able to go back and re-elevate that and um, put it back up with the marsh elevation so it will be able to you know, be high marsh and serve as a, a marsh migration area in the future. That's exciting. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't expecting that much. I'm excited to hear that yeah. much. <laughs> and then there is one more really cool project that we're piloting now um, or that we're getting started to pilot that's a different, very different type of work for us. Um, we received a grant in partnership with Ducks Unlimited for um, the North American Wetland, from the North American Wetlands Conservation Act program that Fish and Wildlife administers. And we're piloting a ditch remediation program, um, which basically means you mow the salt marsh and you put the, you let the hay dry out that you have mowed, you pack it back down in the ditch and try to basically restore the peat network from the ground up. Um, so we're going to be doing that in, with um, crews instead of contractors for the first time ever, looking to mostly um, like Maine and Massachusetts who've been doing this work for the last couple of years. And uh, it's really exciting to try to try to try a different approach. That I was going, you, you, you kind of threw it out there. I was going to ask who has been doing that kind of work. Uh, so it's more in the New England area. They've been yep. doing it with good success. Yes. I mean, enough enough that it raised your eyebrow that you're like, we can do this. Yeah, basically looking at old um, agricultural impairments and figuring out how to undo them, whether or not that's putting ditches back or removing historical berms. Very nice. Very nice. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I'm going to shift gears unless you have a, a question, Oh, you're, Tom. you're good to go, friend. So a little birdie told me that you have interest in green roofs. I do. <laughs> so let's talk green roof ecosystems and how you feel that green roof ecosystems factor into the future in New York City. Sure. Well, and. Unfortunately, I don't get to work on green roofs in New York. Um, I do still play on green roofs in my spare time um, in Texas. But um, I, I think from a climate resiliency standpoint, green roofs and stormwater management systems overall have to factor into the fabric of, this, of our city. It doesn't, we're not going to be able to, you know, say one thing is going to is going to save us all from eight inches of rain over the course of 24 hours. It's going to be a, a multitude of different things to be able to disconnect impervious surfaces and really slow and capture water going into our sewer systems. In in theory, it, it, it sounds, and we've done a podcast on green roofs, and I'm fascinated with it. And in theory, you'd love to see all, you know, every rooftop covered with it. But I know, like, not every rooftop is able to handle that is is could there be more of that in the future with new buildings or is is it hard to retrofit some of these older buildings to make that happen yeah i think it's definitely hard to retrofit i think new buildings like it would be great if they're they're able to be part of a larger part of the stormwater requirements for managing buildings i will say personally I, you know, I would love a green roof on my rooftop, but I am terrified from a maintenance perspective how to how to deal with that. And like, and I'm a person who is in this industry um, who does, you know, who does construction projects, but also I'm like, oh my god, if the roof leaks and then you have to rip path of this up, like, how much does it cost? What do you do? What are my, you know, what's my recourse? How, how do you manage this? And so, um, it's it's a lot for me to even think about given that I am a person who loves them dearly. You know, friend, I have a, I have a gripe with green roofs. What? I have well, a complaint well, with green roofs. Uh, it makes uh, it really hard to find things on Google Satellite View. <laughs> that's <laughs> it, fair. It's like it's a camouflage for the buildings, and you yeah. don't know where they are. That's totally fair. Speaking, 
when when we're talking new construction, it, it's kind of bringing me back a little bit. Has there ever been an instance with construction within the city where you've seen it, how it's changed a wetland or a buffer area immediately just from its impact? A green roof? Or no, or just a, built, a, a new building. A new building. Yeah. Um, good question. Um, I know there is, there's one neighborhood in Staten Island in particular where, um, a new housing development was constructed probably 10 or 15 years ago. And, um, that very, very instantly within like a couple of years, um, that, it was a nice forested wetland system with a lot of streams, and they had salamander, really nice salamander habitat. And um, now it is full of sand, and um, there's head cuts that are moving further and further upstream pretty rapidly. And there's just there was such a sediment influx from the the development of that neighborhood and poor stormwater management alongside with it that you know the cities had to do a lot to manage flooding downstream. Now, I know there's a lot of internal infrastructure and everything that goes in, but I would imagine for a landscape that that is constantly changing, maybe mm-hmm. it's not rapidly changing, but constantly changing, it you have to keep reevaluating the wetlands that filter it yes. to to see, all right, they, they could handle this much. Now they're getting more than what they can handle. Now we have to relook at this. Like, has there been any projects that you've been a part of or aware of that – maybe 10, 20 years down the road, you'd have to look at it and go, we need to to reconfigure this. For sure. I think we're always considering adaptive management in, in projects um, where, you know, maybe something didn't work exactly the way we had hoped it were, we hoped it would, or we had a vision that maybe we weren't able to implement. Or on the flip side of it, you know, something changed upstream and we noticed conditions differed a little bit. And so, we're, we're always considering that. And I think, um, you know, if we were hesitant to do that, we wouldn't be responding to the needs of the ecosystem. So. And I'm sure sometimes budget is a concern. Budget you don't always is, have yeah. the money to do everything that may be right or needed, but you, you do the best you can. In a perfect world, if you had unlimited funds, what's the first wetland you would go to and fix and what would you do? Unlimited funds. Unlimited funds. Is that every everyone's dream here? Unlimited funds. Um, dream big. Let's dream big. For sure, I think if I had unlimited funds, um, the first thing that I would do is deal uh, address Idlewild Marsh um, in Southeast Queens. It's low. It's drowning. It has um, undersized tidal connections, so it has a couple tidal restrictions in it that are pretty significant. And so it fixed the hydrology there, but then also build out the neighborhood with um, green infrastructure in that area upstream. It's one of the few places that actually has um, a connected stream connection or historical stream that goes almost all the way to the terminal moraine. Like there's not really a ton you'd have to daylight, but it has definitely been straightened. Um, it's a shoot. And um, there's a couple of lakes that or pond, small ponds, I shouldn't say lakes, um, that kind of feed into that, uh, into the wetland overall. And there's so much potential in there to really just create a better, uh, a better riparian habitat, capture more stormwater, um, and then also, you know, stop it from coming into this marsh that is hydrological alterations and hydrological constrictions so it doesn't, you know, further back up and create a bathtub and inadvertently drown more sparrow habitat with with the talk of climate change and and moving forward do you think that the average resident is taking more ownership of those areas to make sure that they they will protect them in the future yeah i think they're particularly in um areas along the coastline they're very concerned about climate change and very concerned about you know additional flooding um, the question is, I think sometimes they don't necessarily know what to do or how to advocate and, um, you know, what all of the problems are. And, you know, I can't pretend that we even know what all of the problems are. You know, we do our best with what we, with the tools that we have, but we're learning so much so quickly. Do you, do you have, for some of these larger projects, I know not all of them have impact with neighbors close but i would assume that there's some kind of community outreach 
for, for some of these larger projects too, just to... Yeah, we could always do that better. I think there's you're always going to miss people. Um, but in a, a normal capital project development process, um, we go through certain community steps. So it kind of depends on how visible the project is going to be, whether or not, you know, somebody is ever going to notice that it ever happened. Sometimes that that is a situation that happens. Um, it's on an interior of a space and nobody will probably ever see it except for maybe one or two birders. Um, and then, you know, there's some projects that are, you know, very off of a road, very transformational that everybody will very much see. And so those go through um, public community meetings, around like 30%, kind of once you have something to show people so they understand what you're thinking and have an opportunity to provide feedback. And then through the environmental review process, they all have to go through community board approval. So um, there's various steps along the way. And then, um, you know, we're also always in taking what we learn from other sites and kind of adapting that. So at Hook Creek, um, we learned about the beach process um, and learned that it would be really great to, you know, at least at the bare minimum that the permit sign and that restoration in progress is not necessarily sufficient enough. You know, we need to flyer a little bit more broadly. Have you had any instances where you've gotten a lot of community pushback on what you're trying to do? Usually the pushback is concern about mosquitoes Mm -hmm. um, or it's concern about will restoring this wetland bring the water closer to my house. Mm -hmm. And usually neither one of those cases are, you know, something that we can, you know, talk through and work through. Um, The other, you know, pushback is often um, more associated with recreational Mm-hmm. needs and desires it's like well i i want a playground and i i'm sorry that we can't build a playground on the wetland <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you know you make make the wetland your playground by pi- kayaking on it and yeah. you know different forms of recreation i i would imagine as someone that has social anxiety doing public outreach i mean can be rewarding and can also be daunting uh-huh. um and sometimes like you said will they even notice that the site has been restored. So sometimes the the kudos is just a job well done and knowing what has occurred and what it took to do it. But sometimes kudos could be being the recipient of the 2023 National Wetlands Award uh, awarded by the Environmental Law Institute. So congratulations on that. Thank you. <laughs> that's, I, I, that's something that not everyone gets to experience and has to be very rewarding. How was that experience for you? It was so bizarre. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning for the handful of people who know me in this audience who, um, who might not know this story. So I was actually nominated by um, someone on my team, Eric Passe, who um, has since left to go to the Corps. But um, he physically nominated me and then pulled in a, an obscene amount of information for this nomination package that was not small. Um, and I happen to be, um, I'm blind glasses. Um, I happened to be at the optometrist one day and, um, I got a text message from him saying, check your email now. And I was like, Oh God, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. What's wrong? And, um, I had, I had no idea that it was even, you know, that I was even put up for this and, um, had the nomination package. I'm actually glad that he text messaged me cause I probably would have been like, Oh, this is, you know, joke spam email or something like that. I would never have considered um, so it was a really, really great, um, I don't know, great kind of thing to be, you know, nominated by somebody who works for you. That was really special. And then the, the ceremony itself, uh, was an all day affair. It went down to DC. Um, there was a lunch talks, um, and then the award ceremony at night and, uh, randomly an old colleague from New York actually, who had moved down to DC, um, came and he I was kind of like oh do you normally come to this he was like no I just saw I just saw your name so I decided to stop by um and so I had uh, an accidental little cheerleading squad there that I didn't um, anticipate but it was really great um they're really um inspiring people um all of the other nominees were really great um couple couple organizations that you know we work with um also and it was just really uh it was a very motivating day I, I can imagine. And it it reinforces uh, just the work you do, 
like sometimes you don't always get that acknowledgement and that's very important. I'm very, very happy for you. Thanks. That's very awesome. And it, it kind of firms up like how important your colleagues are that they think of you that way or associations. We're here today at the Society of Ecological Restoration. Why, why do you feel that a conference like this or an organiz- organization like this is important? You're here, yeah. so you obviously feel that it is. For sure. Um, yeah, I think these these spaces just in general are, are absolutely critical. I think, you know, we do so much, um, and I think probably the vast majority of us would say to some degree, like, I'm, I'm a scientist, but we don't often publish, you know, peer-reviewed papers. Um, maybe you get some white papers in there occasionally, but... Really, this is such a just just an important space for sharing knowledge, sharing experiences. We all deal with some um, some element of the same challenges to problem solve. Like it's it's just a really important place for people to to gather and share. Um, and then you know, I I also am a SERP, so I feel like I have to uh, tout that um, certification. And I think it's also want to say like really important from a you know, legitimizing the field perspective, but I also don't want to say, I don't feel like legitimizes is the right word um, because we are all very legitimate, but it brings another like kind of level of cachet to it in a way that I think is really important. So thanks to everybody who, um, who manages and and promotes that program. It it gives you really the, the the opportunity to interact with other leaders in the industry in in a way that's very meaningful Mm -hmm. that I, you may see it in some other industries. I, I really feel this is unique. And, and as Tom, as Tom and I have done all these interviews and, and have met all these people, you may have people that, you know, yeah, people switch jobs, but they love what they do. Yeah. They may be going from one company to another, but they're fully invested sure. in what they do. And I find that very amazing, especially when you look at it, how everyone found their way into this industry. So... Coming from Texas, how did you find your love for doing this, and what was the route that you took to get here? I took a very circuitous route. I think coming, I'll say coming from first from Texas, I will say like, you guys are all so nice. It's very confusing to me. Um, but I say that from the perspective of like this field itself is really um, open and generous and like willing to share, and it's not like my data versus your data. Um, you know, we're really in it for the, for the mission, um, and in it together. And so I think that's really special. Um, my journey into this industry was pretty, um, pretty circuitous, but I think in uh, a lot of ways kind of came full circle. Um, as a kid, I went to, um, the mountains every summer and a tiny little ski town. We only went in the summer. I've never physically skied in my life. Um, (laughs) but a small town called Red River, New Mexico, my parents are actually there right now. And I will say there's definitely no bad blood that they went without me. Um, but I remember as a kid hiking with my dad, he would go fish. I would go sit on a rock and stare at water and read. And um, it was kind of my first foray into nature. And um, I actually don't think very many people know this. I took a high, like a test in high school of like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it told me a forester. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I took one in junior high. It said I was going to be a botanist. Really? Yeah. I'm I, not. But I, I don't think it had that on the list. Um, that would have been pretty interesting. <laughs> But um, at, at Parks, I feel like to a small degree, I have the um, moniker of the person who doesn't like trees um, because I always want to take out invasive trees to build a wetland where they should be or, or otherwise. But um, I actually do love trees. So it said I was supposed to be a forester. I took the path into biology, which, you know, anywhere basically takes you kind of on a very genetic um, biochemical sort of approach. Um, and I worked in a lab for several years and was like, God, this is awful. I can't do this. I need to be outside. And so, um, I fortunately, I kind of actually went to a, like a climate change rally. I think that kind of was like, Ooh, I'm in an ag school. I could take like courses about plants and courses about wildlife and kind of take that approach. And so it actually ended up working really well and um, the first botany I cor- course that I took was um, called Plants and People. Um, and my it was like 
learning about vegetables and the different, uh, you know, different plant parts and all of the patterns around them. And um, I realized my friends started telling me to shut up every time we ate because I would be like, oh, did you know a carrot is related to all of these other plants? And they were just like, can you please go away? <laughs> and so um, I think I kind of accidentally found my way into something that I liked, and but like found my way back into something that I liked, mm-hmm. and I was, I was hooked from then. Very nice. I, I was thinking when you mentioned trees that – I know that's something like when people think of restoration, sometimes they, they tend to go for forested woodlands. And then you you hear Dr. Dwayne Estes talk at the Southeastern, is it Grassland Initiative now? Yes. Uh, Institute. In, Institute. Oh, it is Institute. Yeah. Institute. Um, just the important, how much of this area was originally grasslands? Do, is, is there a fight sometimes when it comes to, there's only so much mud, budget and things that need to be done. Like, is there a focus on one thing other than another like is it trees versus marsh you know yeah I don't think so much it's trees versus marsh um I think in some instances it depends on what needs to happen where um like for example a lot of our coastline is better suited to salt marsh than coastal forest because there's fill on it and it's going to be really hard to restore a coastal forest in garbage soil or at least you know the coastal forest that you could fill so I think there's definitely there's always a little bit of a hey can I go can I go here um can I play here um and a little bit of a give and take but you know I think there's a recognition that both ecosystems are really important given fill soil which probably tends to give better habitat to invasive how how hard is it combating invasives at this stage in in areas like that not easy. Okay. Um, it's mostly, I think, for us, uh, like an understanding that is it is it worth it? And if it's not worth it, and you're not going to be able to restore the habitat that you want to restore by just you know cutting and or spraying herbicide, um, then you need to really try to transform it. Is there is there more pressure moving forward for less spraying? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Um, yeah, the city has a pesticide law where you're not able to spray glyphosate anymore. Okay. Um, and we also really do a lot to minimize the amount that we spray. Um, we only spray in natural areas. And um, before we do any spraying, we cut to really minimize what you have to spray to begin with and also try to, you know, stump the plant and make it as unhappy as possible. That way, you know, you're making your herbicide as much more effective. Awesome. Fran, I was going to say, just looking at the time, and we're in a room full of people who are way, way smarter than we are. Why don't we see if the audience has any questions? All right. You want to open it? If if anyone has any questions, if you can come up to the microphone here, we can turn it on. Anyone? No questions? This may be a first. Come on, no one has a question. <laughs> no one wants to do us a favor. They're, oh, they're, are they telling us that we're smarter? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. There's no. Okay. Here we go. Hi, Rich Fingston. Uh, I'm from Maryland. Uh, just wondering. You mentioned that um, uh, you were talking about awareness of individuals in New York. Uh, do you think that Hurricane Sandy made people? a lot more aware both of the, the, the reason that they need more restoration and then saw the restoration helping? 100%, yes. Um, I think there's also, there's been a lot of mapping that has shown um, or confirmed, I guess, the, the common wisdom that where there is flooding, there were historical wetlands. And um, that is becoming more common knowledge, which I think has helped. Who? That was a really good question, Fran. Why didn't you question. think of that one? <laughs> I, I can't think of everything. Um, who are your inspirations in this industry looking at, um, like I said, there's an all-star audience here and, and all these other organizations, all, so many people doing great work. Is there anyone that you look up to and the work that they're doing or that you admire? Or, it's, or, it's, or I'll throw a couple or it's help mentor you throughout the years. Yeah, I I definitely have many, many mentors, I can say, Um, but I'm definitely inspired by, you know, the work that every 
everybody else does. Um, I'm inspired by my team. I'm inspired by their enthusiasm. Um, I'm inspired by everybody who just loves doing this type of work and, you know, trying to make the environment better. Um, I've had some great mentors over the years who have pushed me into, you know, said like, yeah, why would you say no to this? And I'm like, oh, it's probably a pretty good point. I probably should do that. Um, and so I, you know, definitely wouldn't have been here at all without their, um, without their nudging, without their wisdom. So very nice. You can you can list Tom as an inspiration. Yeah, if you want, to. It's open. It's, yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Before we go to the last question, which is always our our same last question, which is very simple yet very difficult. I just want to throw one more time out. If there's any questions from the audience, last chance. Okay. All right. So our final question is always the same, and it's what is your favorite native plant? This is such a horrible question. It is, and you know we, <laughs> and we do that on purpose. I know, um, but we we've never limited everyone to one or anyone oh, great. to one, okay, and good. we've never said that you have to stick to it forever and ever and ever. Okay. Like it can change tomorrow, if, okay, or it could change as soon as you walk out of the building. But um, if you want to want to give one or two, that's that's fine. Okay, so I'll do. I think my. F- my my first favorite native plant is actually um, a, a semi parasitic plant. Um, it's called Sarcodes sanguinea, and it's a, a like snow plant that is found in the Sierras. And it's one of those plants that like forms um, relationships with the trees, and um, it takes on heat and helps melt the snow, but it literally has zero chlorophyll. It is blood red. It is the most beautiful thing in the world. And I finally saw one in July of 2019 and I think it was the best day of my life. Um, so that's my, that's my favorite nerdy plant that is not here. Sorry. Um, my favorite local plant or non-local plant, um, might be Trypsicum dactyloides. Um, I very much love grasses. Um, I very much like to key grasses and I know that's a really nerdy thing that not everybody likes, but, um, Tripsicum is such a great plant. It's very, very hardy. It's clonal. Um, it's beautiful and weird and tall and very charismatic, but it also can deal with, um, saltwater, freshwater, and it's, you know, it's a wetland plant. I think... We've never had anyone name either of those. Either of those, so yeah. that's Sweet. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, so we always end the show in the same way, where we we each take turns doing a final thought, and we we let our guests go first. And this is where we kind of throw the floor over to you, and you can use the time however you want. If you want to summarize, if you want to promote something, if you want to mention something we hadn't talked about, uh, now's the time to do it. So the floor is yours. Um, I think the only thing that I didn't talk about that I wanted to make sure I talked about was um, just the importance of stewardship. Um, we were talking about maintenance earlier, and um, you know, part of the reason I wouldn't say we have you know dedicated funding in every single project for maintenance, but we do have a dedicated stewardship crew that was you know really hard fought and absolutely critical. And I. I can't imagine us doing this scale of work without them um, to be able to really bring in communities and um, get people with their hands in the dirt and really understand the importance of what they're doing. It's one thing to tell people about a project before it, but actually having them be involved with it afterwards and being able to care for it really creates a different level of ownership that I think is really special. Is there a portion of this work that is volunteer-driven? at all or is that more through the nonprofits that you work with no it's definitely i think depending on where you are some of it is definitely volunteer driven awesome that's a fantastic thought and we hadn't talked about that yeah um tom would you like to go would you like me to yeah mine is is really deep and complex and that's uh with the unlimited funds question we ask that a lot and um actually i was driving through our town one day and i saw there's a historic building in our town and i said oh if i had unlimited funds i would buy that building and then i would turn it in like this really cool restaurant and my wife's like you wouldn't go on vacation you wouldn't like quit your job <laughs> you wouldn't do any of that stuff but 
basically we asked that question and it's geared to oh for your work what would you do but no one has ever like made that and said well i'd do this instead not once I'd switch yeah not once. yeah they're all like oh no i'd invest in this marsh or, or this woodland or that kind of thing this kind of thing uh i think someone wanted to buy equipment one time that was their thing yeah it was like equipment to do their job but yeah yeah it's interesting who will be the first we'll take very deep off and the profound end. <laughs> So mine would be in speaking of inspirations, you know, the the one thing for me that has changed throughout my career has been the creation of this, this podcast. And with every guest that we have, I'm more and more inspired to keep doing what we do. And I, I just want to say thank you to all of you out there that that do what you do. And for that, like I said, there's many past guests out in the audience right now that have been a part of this. You're all our inspirations. You you are what makes this possible, but all the other work that's being done possible, and we can't thank you enough. So thank you. All right. That's it. Fran, are we going to make everyone suffer through this part? We are. Okay, yeah. We are, yeah. So yeah, that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Rebecca Swadek or Becca Swadek from New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pylons Nursery. We have to give a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music uh, to our Meet the Guest theme music. Of course, we didn't play that here today, but uh, if you're listening online, you're hearing it. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume music. Thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or native plants underscore healthy planet and also youtube at pinelands nursery we're going to put all the links for today's podcast in the show notes so if you want to learn more about new york city parks uh wetlands we'll have links in the the show notes for that uh don't forget about the question and answer line you can call us at 215-346-6189 i will repeat that 215-346-6189 you can uh ask a question or leave a comment we'll do our best to play it on a future episode of the buzz Let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, everyone's doing a wonderful job keeping it keeping it very kind and civil, and we appreciate all the new members. And there's yeah, there's some members of the Facebook group that are here too. Yeah, it's top amazing. contributors, <laughs> they get the top fan batch. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Um, there's a lot of t-shirts and aprons and phone cases up there. Uh, Brad, I see. Well, I didn't see your phone, but I'm assuming you don't have a phone case. Why not? Yeah, why, why not, not, Brad? You're not um, wearing any merch. We can we re, like redact <laughs> top fan badges. We did wish him happy birthday, so I, I think maybe we can. So, um, but we don't keep any of the money from that. We basically kind of put it in our PayPal account, and then someone comes along that really inspires us and says, "Hey, you know what? Five hundred dollars could go a long way with that organization," and we give it to them when we get that lump sum. So. Uh, you're not only getting a fashionable T-shirt, you're, and that spreads, spreads a native plant message. You're also, in a roundabout way, giving back to an organization that could really use the money. Um, and then you can listen to our podcast, uh, for those of you who don't listen to our podcast, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, not Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Um, really, anywhere, anywhere you can ask Alexa to play the podcast. Uh, you just got to say, hey, Alexa, play Native Plants Healthy Planet, and, and it comes on. I've tried it at home every once in a while, and then I realized... I already lived this, so I don't need to listen to it again. <laughs> but, yeah, so with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. Uh, and I am Fran. Thank you, everyone. Becca, thank you so much for joining us today. We me. We appreciate it. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, everyone in the audience, for joining us today. Thank you. We appreciate it. And surprisingly, we kept this to an hour. Yeah, exactly. It's a record. It's a record. So uh, – Next week, coming up on our Buzz episode, we're going to announce the winners of uh, two autographed copies of Soil uh, by Camille Dungy. We're excited to do that. So make sure you tune in, and until then, keep it native. In meadows, woods, wetlands, and dales grows a bounty of beauty that never fails. Our native plants, so diverse and so rare, treasures of our Soaring oaks above, each plant has a place, each plant is love. Modern caterpillars must know if we so tall. These buzz about sifting methods fall. Oh, native plants, how do you grace this land? In your diversity, we will take a stand. 
too protect to presume for Earth to restore the need of plant food that you just can't ignore. Floating by asterisks and flowers galore, Menard is so stunning can't help but adore. Your colors, the fragrance, a piece for the eyes, I value too wild like no need to disguise. Native plants, how you grace this land, in your diversity we will take a stand. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.